Welcome to Getting Work to Work, a weekly podcast exploring the creative and curious world of work through monologues and conversations with creative entrepreneurs, storytellers, and changemakers. What do you see when you stop and examine your life and career? Do you recognize a need to shift and actually change, or do you stay for a myriad of reasons? Jenny Blumenthal is the author, speaker, and executive coach of Corporate Rehab and helps people detox from hustle culture to find purposeful work. In this conversation, Jenny shares her story of leaving a 20-year career in corporate America during the Great Resignation. She talks about her rehab framework, what keeps people from moving forward and changing, how to pay attention to significant wake-up calls, and leading at a higher level without losing yourself. Whether you work at a corporate job or for yourself, there's a lot to learn in this conversation about bringing purposeful work into focus. Show notes and links to all the good stuff mentioned in this episode can be found at gwtw.co slash 629. You know, I love asking questions about curiosity because I'm a very curious person and I I just assume naturally that everyone is is curious. But I'm curious what fills your curiosity tank. Oh boy. Um I, I do I have to pick one thing? <laughs> um I think I'm uh I'm really a lifelong learner. And so for me, I really enjoy learning new skills and things when I was in Corporate America, I found that I had to be in a new type of industry about every three years just to kind of keep things fresh. Mm -hmm. And now um, as an author and a speaker and an executive coach um, for for women and for companies, I get to actually do a lot of the intellectual curiosity thing every day. So um, it's everything from learning a new skill, like I've just taken up adult ice hockey, um, to, oh, cool. uh, which is super fun. Um, and, and talk about humbling, um, when you are cheering on your 10 year old on the ice and then she can literally skate circles around you when you get out and try it. It's a, it's definitely good for, um, you know, for keeping me learning. Um, and then obviously, you know, I'm teaching also at the university level. So that part's been fun to kind of challenge how to bring this message to, people that are already working um, and, and who are about to enter the workforce. So I think any of those things that really stretch my intellectual curiosity muscles is typically what fills my tank. That's awesome. And a, and a little bit of, you know, getting shoved into the glass of ice yeah. hockey, you know. It always helps. <laughs> I, what I love that you added in there too was there is a sense of humility that curiosity can bring to one's life when you're willing to humble yourself and and do things that you're not good at. Yes, I think that's so true. And I think um, for many reasons, probably our culture doesn't always uh, reward that. Um, there's this uh, tendency to say, take all your vulnerabilities and shove them away somewhere, stuff those in a place where no one else can see those um, as weaknesses, as opposed to looking at humility um as a as a means to let yourself be a little vulnerable and and that's really where connection takes place with other humans so it's crucial um not only for survival but for thriving and innovation yeah well one of the things that totally captured my attention when i was learning about you was the name corporate rehab i mean whether you work for a corporation or yourself i mean that rings all the bells right there because it, it that is so fascinating so what is corporate rehab 
Yes. So Corporate Rehab um, is a leadership company and now a book um, that's just been published. Um, and the whole concept really started from my own story, which I'll share, but it's really a process to detox from the hustle culture mindset that runs in the background of so many of our decisions of both life and career. Um, and it's a process that if you find yourself having you know, looked at your priorities or decided you wanted something different in life um, or in your job, it's a process that you can go through to just be more aware of the mindsets and behaviors that you're uh, and patterns that you're taking on, and then make some intentional choices to shift the things that you can um, and make some choices around the things that you can't. Um, and the whole, uh, the name of it actually started out almost as a joke. Um, my back, quick backstory is I spent 20 years in corporate America. Um, I left in the great resignation uh, amidst extreme burnout, as we would call it now. Back then, um, you know, the, most of the public wouldn't have really understood that term, but I was on three planes a week. I had two elementary schoolers. Uh, my husband's a surgeon, so he's in the medical field. Wow. So we were just hustling um, constantly. It was, a, it was a way of life. And so when the world stopped, it really gave me a chance to really look at the way I was leading my life, um, the purpose that I was or wasn't finding in my job, um, and some of the relationships around me that I had probably underinvested in for years, including the one with myself. And so when I left, I just said, you know, I was stretched like so many of us that no childcare at home, two kids in elementary school doing their school on on Zoom at the kitchen table while I was upstairs in the office, you know, trying to run a $250 million business unit and 300 people um, and my husband at work. And it was it was a something's got to give moment. And so um, if it hadn't been a pandemic, I probably would have pivoted right into the next role. Um, but because the world was shut down, it really gave me a chance to go within and say, you know, what is it that kept me in some of these situations that I had outgrown or that were no longer helpful for me, um, what is it about the situation or a boss or a culture versus what is it about me that made me stay in the situation? And so when I left, I was kind of at the, the height of that career. And so I got a lot of questions about, well, what are you doing and what happened? And I would joke that I'm putting myself through my own corporate rehab because I felt like I was detoxing from you know, so much of this hustle that I had just um, been stewing in probably for my entire life. And the name stuck um, and it became this uh, approach and, and being a consultant, I thought, okay, everybody who keeps calling me and asking, well, I'm feeling the same way. What do I do next? Right. I can't send them, you know, 12 podcasts and five books and three, you know, um, three articles to read like I was consuming. And so I started to organize um, everything that I was reading about myself and mindset and neuroscience of leadership and um, and patterns. And I began to put it into a framework. And ironically, um, it spelled out rehab, which I thought was kind of a sign. Um, so it, the rehab framework stands for five steps. The first is recognize. So recognizing your life story and the context for some of the values and choices that you've made. E is for evaluate. So looking at energy, relationships, patterns, mindsets that you might have been stuck in or that might have really helped you to a certain point in your life, but maybe aren't as helpful moving forward. H is for heal and across mind, body, and spirit of letting go of some of these things that, um, that are no longer good for you. 
arise is the fun part. That's when you get to go play ice hockey and, and uh, explore the play that, um, that I think we get very disconnected from when we live disconnected from ourselves um, and really try to explore what are the things that really light you up. And then the final step is build. So building, um, you know, a new dimension of your life or career. Um, in my private coaching practice, I coach executive women and we actually build a roadmap because so many of us who are uh, proud type A's or recovering type A's, we feel a lot better with a, a milestone checklist you can you can check off and healing is not always linear. Um, so it helps to feel like you're you're making some intentional choices about whether it's boundaries that you're shifting, whether it's a new job that you're trying to get. And so that's really um, how that all came together. And um, the joke about it being corporate rehab that I was in really stuck. And, uh, and I'm really grateful for it because it, it kind of stops you in your tracks and makes you think a little bit about, you know, whether or not you're in corporate that is, is almost immaterial. Um, this really applies just as much to a stay-at-home mom, somebody in a faith-based organization as it does to the boardroom. Yeah. I'm really interested about something because when when the world stops and you get a chance to slow down and see take stock of everything around you, what what kept you from going back? Cuz I think a lot of people feel that that trapping to stay. Yeah, it's a good question. For me, I think that's a highly personal thing for each person. Mm -hmm. um, for me, uh, it was the first time I really started to examine how much of the choices, how many of the choices I was making were truly my own versus how much was I hustling for self-worth outside of myself or just going down a path that was someone else's dream. And so by the time I left, um, I, I was at a point where I was, you know, not only burned out from an exhaustion perspective, but I also just felt like I was put on the earth to do something a little bit more. And it was likely a, fu a, a function of the time we were in as well, that um, we had, I was leading the travel industry at that point um, for the, the company. And that, you know, had just taken a huge nosedive when planes are grounded. Right. Um, but that actually gave me a lot of purpose because I got up every morning leading a team of, of partners to go put together new solutions for executives who were making these really hard decisions about how to keep the company afloat and keep jobs intact versus who to let go or furlough. And so it gave me so much purpose. And then our new fiscal year hit um, in July of that of 2020. And all of a sudden it was, you know, the game boards reset. And now it's just about really, you know, going, trying to have a, a gangbuster year and, and earning the revenue. And that stark contrast for me was really hard to swallow. Um, I had a really hard time shifting from, I feel so much meaning and purpose in what I'm doing. And I'm absolutely getting up every day and championing for my clients, for my teams, to it's really about, you know, whoever has the biggest deal. And that's, that's the point. Now, understanding that, you know, uh, companies that are, are in business to make money, have to make money to take care of their teams um, is, a, is a reality, really, of corporate America. But I think there's different ways that we can lead and different choices that we can make. And at that point in time, um, I felt really disillusioned with a very, what felt to me like a very one-dimensional strategy of shareholder price at the expense of a lot of other things. And so my personal take on that was now that I've seen it, I can't unsee it, you know, right. I can't, I, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here saying the emperor has no clothes, so I can't really go back and, and go back into that scenario. Now I probably could have 
gone to another company. But I think at that point, I realized some of it was the environment I was in or certain bosses or certain scenarios. And then some of it was me um, in terms of, you know, uh, not having the boundaries around my time that I could have had and not having a stronger voice or not using my voice in a way that that could have, you know, uh, affected different types of change. And so I really wanted to spend the time and, and understand that. And I realized that was a privilege to be able to spend that time. Um, and then against the, the context of what we were going through, this was happening, you know, day after day, and I'm working 60 hour weeks to try to keep all this afloat. And our next door neighbor dropped dead. And, um, and it was a pretty big wake up call. Um, and we think it was one of the early COVID cases before there was any of those diagnoses. And I think that was one of the major things that said, you know, at some point, <laughs> that's going to be me. And will I have been really fulfilled by by you know, flying away from my kids when planes go back up or being upstairs 14 hours a day doing this? And the answer was, no, I don't think so anymore. And so that was, that was really my moment to say, I don't think I can do this. Now, I actually coach a lot of executive women on how to make that decision a little bit more gradually so that you don't have to just <laughs> right. parachute out. <laughs> um, and, it's, and it's not advisable uh, for a lot of reasons from a, a financial perspective. But honestly, I get... Um, DMs and calls from women every single day that are saying, I can't take it anymore and I need, I need to get out. What do I do next? And I think that's really where, um, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for us to lead differently so that we're not pushing people past a breaking point. Yeah. Well, it seems like that's that's a huge lie that we're we're fed is that, you know, this is just the way it is. You just have to live with it or leave. What are some other big lies that that women in particular are fed on how to approach their careers? Oh boy. Um, how much time do we have? I think um I think one of them is, and this is really um crucial and it 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 goes across men and women, but I think women bear the brunt of it like so many other things is this scarcity model um, that we're we're led to believe that there's not enough. Um, and so um, you know, if if someone gets something, then you're not going to get that thing. And and as opposed to looking at it as there's plenty, there's abundance, and you can, you know, hustle for something, but it, it doesn't mean that there's a certain amount of scarcity. And and the hustle culture really feeds on that because as long as you believe that you need to hustle for your worth it can keep you moving faster and faster. And, you know, if you, if you're looking for a, a real time, you know, I don't know, give me some proof, Jenny, I would point you to any of the, um, the, the diversity or DEI initiatives this year that said, oh, we absolutely believe in diversity. See, we've hired a woman or a person of color to our board and that's it. We're done, you know, and there's 10 spots on the board. We have one person. So now we're set. And if there's another woman who's a candidate, well, we already have one. So why do we need a second? That's a scarcity model, as opposed to saying there's 10 spots and let's let the, the you know, the best candidates, um, you know, vie for those one tenth of each of those spots, as opposed to we already have one woman. And that's the type of thing I think that pits women against each other. But I think there's also a way that women internalize that. And this is specific to gender. Um, and I know that that is a, a broad spectrum, but people that would identify as women or who might have been brought up in a culture where feminine traits were something that is part of their upbringing, that you tend to feel that you are not enough. And that's not something that 
somebody would readily raise their hand and say, oh yeah, I don't think I'm enough. But usually what I um, ask women to do is pay attention to the voice that they tell themselves when everything's quiet. Um, And one of those big lies is I should have done that. I could have done that if I was faster. I should have been a better mom. Uh, Gosh, I should have realized that the board was going to ask that question and done an extra hour of preparation. And all of that feeds on this lie that we're not enough. And whenever the the mind is actually running on that behind the scenes, it's often not a conscious thought. It's something that's that's really in your neurological programming. Your actions will reflect that. So I just better hustle harder or I'm not sure if I'm going to get that promotion. I'll just put in two more hours tonight um, as opposed to already acting as if you're enough and letting that, you know, dictate um, a little bit of a moderator or a governor on, on uh, your amount of hustle. So I think those are, are two other things, the scarcity model, and then feeling like we're not enough that are, are definitely huge lies um, that we've all been fed, unfortunately. And it's up to us to reprogram some of those beliefs and, and feed ourselves a new truth yeah. um, as opposed to some of those lies um, so that we can make some intentional choices. Yeah. And I imagine that when you have a, a an a awareness of what your purpose is, it's easier to separate truth from lie and make better decisions. Yes, that's very true. And if that's something in particular, because you'd asked about gender, I find that women tend to focus first on, I better have an amazing why. And if I don't know what my purpose is, what's wrong with me? <laughs> In fact, um, I have a good friend who said- I need to read more books. (laughs) Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, I have a friend who said, every maternity leave, I was going to figure out my purpose and I didn't, so I'm just going to keep going. And we we laughed about it because it's true. We hold ourselves to the standard that I should know what my passion is and I should have this big purpose. And if I don't have it and it's not something I'm willing to put on a billboard in, um, in New York City, then I better just put my head down and keep hustling. So I think that's one thing that- um, that gets us a little bit, um, you know, caught up is one that it has to be audacious and this amazing thing and perfectly thought out as a why. And then the second is we often go straight from why to what and how. Mm-hmm. I would love to be a, um, you know, safe seals in, you know, off uh, Antarctica, but who would pick up the kids from daycare? Maybe that won't work. <laughs> I would love to do whatever. And we, we back ourselves out of our why so fast by focusing on the logistics of how this will work. And we come by it honestly, right? Because there's so many um, women out there who are the community builders, who keep society running on unpaid labor, by the way. And so no wonder we're saying, but who would pick up the kids? Because that's a very real responsibility um, that many women feel. But I think to your point, recentering that on why is so powerful and just giving us a chance to say, well, if I, if I know the why, what are the 20 what's and how's that that could work? And it starts a dialogue as opposed to you shutting down those other avenues right away. Mm-hmm. I love that too, because it leaves you open up to things that you don't know that you don't know, as opposed yeah. to feeling like you need to like, it's almost like you need the answer before you even know the question a lot of times. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. And some of that too is, is, um, head or facts like do you have enough facts to say that that won't work or and some of it's heart like you know what is your body and your and your spirit actually telling you if if you've got this huge pull to work with seals 
maybe you can be the CEO of the, you know, the National Wildlife Federation and, and do that a different way. So I think that does just, you know, give us a little bit more flexibility. Mm. Mm. So as we think about switching jobs, you mentioned earlier that you help people, women in particular, not make the decision to leave so quickly that they have a plan, they have a roadmap. Um, but, you know, it's interesting when I think about switching jobs, oftentimes there's always that fear of like, well, what about the benefits? How are you going to handle uncertainty? How are you going to do this? How are you going to do that? And it comes back to that idea of, you know, staying in what we know, even if we're miserable. Yeah. And I'm curious why, why we're trained to stay in misery when there's so many good opportunities out there. Yes. Um, I would say my short answer, not knowing the, the psychographics of every person listening, um, is because it's familiar and our brains go back to the familiar, even if it's not good for you. So, you know, sometimes it's, you know, this gets tossed out as a, a phrase of the devil, you know, um, but there's some real truth to that, that if we understand how to deal with a narcissist, then we say, well, this guy's or girl's a jerk, but at least I know how to handle her as opposed to maybe I could get a job where I'm not working with a narcissist. <laughs> um, and I think that's part of it is that the familiar, um, and, and this is really at a neurological level, our bodies are wired to go back to what's familiar, um, actually, even from when we were babies. And, and those of us that grew up with um, situations that weren't good for us as children, um, one of the things I, I found the most fascinating in my research is that your worldview is set by the time that you're seven. So by the time you're in first grade, your brain and body has already figured out what and who is safe around you, what will nurture you, um, what will get you scolded, what will get you rewarded. And your body is literally the best supercomputer out there designed to keep you alive and safe. And so it's already pre-programmed. Um, and it knows exactly what needs to happen. So I think it's interesting when you think about that. Now, obviously, we layer on experiences and insights to that, but these pathways are actually the, the oldest part of the brain, the reptilian part of the brain. And when we're triggered by something, those come, you know, those that part of the brain actually hijacks the thinking part of the brain. And so when you're saying, you know, there is this, you could have someone who's looking at it from a conscious perspective from a spreadsheet, but often what happens is we talk about leaving, we talk about doing something different, but there's some part of our brains that say, but I need to have security. Maybe we had a parent who went through a financial crisis and it really, you know, had a huge impact. There's a part of us that says, I will feel too vulnerable if I don't have money and money gives us options. Mm -hmm. um, maybe there was someone where there was a source of, you know, of real fear. Um, and when we work for that type of, of boss or, or company, it's familiar. We know how to handle it. And so we stay in some of these situations that, that aren't that great for us. Um, so I think that's part of the reason why we stay, you know, in general for things that aren't that great. You also mentioned the benefits piece, and that's something where I have a lot of hope for moving forward that if we, I don't know that we're really moving towards, you know, a hundred percent gig economy, but I think what the pandemic showed us is that work is not a place. Um, work is, you know, outcomes and things that we do towards this impact that we have. And obviously that takes a ton of different modes that could be shift work where you really are on a factory line and making widgets that could be extreme knowledge work where you're, 
designing computer models and it can be anywhere. Um, and we need to design the future of work for all of those, you know, different um, possibilities and outcomes. But my hope is that there will be great disruption to the, um, I'm sure cor the corporate guys are not going to be excited about hearing this, <laughs> to, uh, to insurance, to benefits, to, you know, collective um, support infrastructures. And, you know, if you look at what is happening from a caregiver perspective. We have no national health care in this country. Finland just took care of that. Um, it, you know, it's come up again and again. And every time it comes up with any administration, it's always framed as this mother's choice, mm -hmm. as opposed to this is a societal choice. And so if we had infrastructure like you know, in that had caregiving, if we had access to benefits that was independent of your company and actually followed you as a career, mm -hmm. um, then you'd have people, more people being able to do portfolio careers and add value in different ways. I just don't think we're thinking enough outside the box on that one yet, but, I, but somebody is, someone's going to do the, um, the Uber or the Airbnb of, of benefits and, um, and watch out because that's yeah. what keeps a lot of people in place. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. I, I'm I'm so fascinated by this idea of returning to what is safe, returning to what you know, because I was thinking about this idea of the alternative to survival mode. And if all you ever know is the survival mode, how are you going to then know what's beyond that if that's all you are comfortable with? Yes. Oh, gosh. And I could talk about this for forever. Um so the opposite is abundance um, and, and living and thriving, but maybe the easiest way for um, people to picture this, if you're driving in the car right now and, and, um, and trying to consume this, is if you think back to high school and Maslow's needs of hierarchy of needs, where it's the pyramid and at the very bottom, you've got the security needs, which are physical needs like food and water and safety and shelter. And then the next up from there, you get more into physiological needs and psychographic needs. So things like connection, next comes esteem, and then finally purpose and, you know, and, and self-mastery um, and in the highest form of evolution, if you ascribe to that, that model. And the concept is that as you move up the pyramid, the bottom level of needs, once they're met, it frees you up to go pursue the higher order needs. Mm -hmm. But the other piece I think is interesting is once those bottom level needs are met, those needs become less of a motivation. So mm -hmm. for example, if you are in a, a real you know, war scenario, um, you will be focused on food and shelter. Maybe your war is you know, you're, you just lost your job. You've got three kids at home and you and you're the only um, worker in your household. And so you need a job that's going to put food on the table and take care of that basic needs. That is your motivation. But once that is met, then as you move up into the next level of needs, you're saying, okay, well, now I've got this steady paycheck and I've got job security. And now that bad boss is really bothering me. I do feel disconnected or I do feel disrespected. Um, or, you know, I feel connection with my coworkers, but moving into the esteem category, I don't feel as excited about my title or the the role that I play in this in this company. So let me pursue something that helps me get that met. Um, and then finally, you'll see purpose, which is, I think, pretty indicative um, of what happened during the great resignation. I know a lot of it 
was driven by some of these lower level needs of no childcare and, and those realities. But I think you also saw a lot of people whose expenses paused for a moment because they weren't driving and, and having to pay for childcare um, and, and other things because we weren't going anywhere. Um, and they said, well, wait a minute. Now I'm kind of freed up for a moment to think about purpose or meaning or respect. And, and I'm not finding that in my daily life or I'm not finding that in this job. And maybe I should really rethink this. So I think there's an awful lot of us, um, for for better or worse, who are really heavily influenced by the survival mentality, as you asked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you can come from so many places. It can come from parents who were raised um, in a World War II generation where they they really saw friends, you know, get killed in action. It can come from people who, you know, lost their retirement in, you know, any of the financial crises that we've had. Um, and I think anytime you have that, you know, whether it's it's outright safety or if it's financial security um, at play as one of the main um, things that was talked about in your home growing up, or you saw um, a big example of that, that can keep you stuck in a survival mentality a little bit longer than you intended to. Um, I have a lot of women that I work with that say that are, I mean, just kick ass, you know, taking names, doing awesome work and could apply for any job they wanted and would get it. And they say, you know, and I'm dealing with this really toxic situation or boss or client or whatever, but I, I watched my parents struggle and I will never do that to my child. So I refuse to leave. And so it's a great example of, you know, that there could be other things that are out there that are great for them where they have just as much financial security and the the you know healthy culture of a working environment, but it's too scary to leave that behind because that financial security need is prominent right now. Um, and until they have that covered, um, they, they won't be ready to reach for something um, higher up at the scale. Yeah. So is that really the only solution then is to take care of that need so that they can then move on? Or can, is there a way to... I guess, shortcut that scenario? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I think some of it comes from the mindset around security, um, because a lot of this is really hanging on to that survival mindset long after the threat has passed. Mm. So um, you might be now, and obviously, to your point, if you are in a situation where you are trying to um, you know, meet rent every month. And, and it's a real, it, that is your reality. That security is a huge issue that you're, you're trying to make sure you take care of. Um, but, but on top of that, I think there's also these mindsets that work in the background that long after you have enough, however you define that, um, we stay stuck in these situations because our mindset hasn't changed. So I think there are ways to shift your mindset. And that comes back to Again, listening um, to that voice um, when when the, when you find yourself, whether it's triggered or you find yourself hustling or or fear is driving the bus instead of rationality, just listen to what's actually going between your ears. And I actually force myself to say it out loud, um, awkward as that is. <laughs> Usually I'm by myself when I do it, but I'm shocked at what comes out of my mouth when I have to verbalize it. I would never say something that mean to a friend or if a friend was saying that I would tell her, of course, that's crazy. You know, you're really talented. You'll find another job or whatever it might be. Um, But I think that's one way to kind of shortcut it. Um, The other is, you know, back to my consulting chops of 20 years is to ask the seven whys when you're trying to get to like a root cause analysis. 
um, you, you start with a question, you just keep asking why until you get down to the belief that's at the bottom of that feeling or that mindset. So it might be something like, um, I need to have a good paying job. Well, why? Well, because I've got to make sure um, that, you know, my, I feed my family and, you know, I want to be respected in the community. Well, why do you want to be respected? Well, because, you know, I was taught that financial security and, you know, contributing a lot to the home is what makes you respected. Well, why? Well, because that's a man's role. And then you get into, oh, interesting. Okay. So what's really driving this is my definition of my role in my family or in society as opposed to, you know, whatever the actual salary that's being offered or whatever the actual job is. And I think that's important because, and you might still decide to take that job or keep that mindset, but you're calling it out into the light. You're basically shining a light on it and saying, huh, do I still believe that? Do I still believe that my job is to be the breadwinner or do I believe that I'm in a relationship of any type where I can share with a partner or, uh, I can ask somebody else, a family member to take on some responsibilities. Um, and it just, again, it gives you a little bit more of an opportunity to examine your own thought processes and then decide if they're still use- useful for you. Hmm. I love that a lot too, because it also implies that you take a moment to slow down and uh, give yourself time to ask those seven questions, which is really what corporate rehab sounds like it's all about. Yes, definitely. Yes, it's hard to ask these questions when you're hustling. (laughs) Um, Glennon Doyle is one of my favorite writers, and she has this gorgeous description in um, her book, Untamed, about how it feels like when she doesn't use exactly the same words of hustle that I would, but when you're running so fast, it's like a snow globe that's always shaken up. Um, And if it's shake, if the snow globe is, is being shook, um, you can't let the dust settle in or the snow settle in this case and, and see what's actually going on beneath the surface. And I think that's part of what going within and getting really quiet or still or any of these things, it, it really forces you, um, you know, to, to put the hustle culture to the side and actually look at some of these feelings. And I think the, the other piece to that, that's the, the unfortunate reality sometimes is sometimes those feelings can be really painful um, or the, the, even the things you're telling yourself, you yeah. know, could be really mean. And that's another piece to this, that it's, it's hard to do this work sometimes because, sometimes it's easier to keep running um, and say, oh, I'll deal with that, you know, next year. Next time I have a break, I'll, I'll, I'll think about my passion or why I'm still in this, you know, this situation. Um, but I think that's the other piece to it is just giving yourself some space and, and trying not to judge yourself for what, for whatever comes up, which is a real challenge when um, you've spent a life hustling. Yeah. So at what point did writing a book enter your uh, the picture of your life? Ah, well, after I I vaulted out of corporate and decided I would just get another job, um, unfortunately, the pandemic had a different <laughs> idea for me, um, which was actually exactly what I needed. Um, but I think from that point, when I started to go within and say, I'm going to gather all this information. It first started with those pandemic walks that we were all taking in 2020. And I would walk with a friend and they'd say, oh, you got to send me all these articles and things you're reading. And I tried to start organizing it. And it got to a point where I thought, you know, at first I was thinking, well, I'll just do this with the with my coaching. And it finally got to a point where I felt like I was 
teaching a lot of the same concepts. And wouldn't this be better if it were just in a book that people could consume? And then, you know, we could spend our time, um, you know, coaching to some of these concepts, but I wouldn't be trying to teach them something for the first time. And so that's really where the book came from. Um, and of course, like with my people pleasing perfectionist self, I was thinking, Oh, I'll, I'll I'll bundle it up and make it perfect and then get it out into the world. And I was working with a writing coach who was like, no, no, this is not the way it goes. You, you just get things out there and you let people react, um, which was the best advice ever and terrifying mm-hmm. um, for someone who's you know spent her life trying not to show vulnerabilities. Um, but I was shocked at, at how, what the response was that I was just giving voice to what a lot of people, um, I started posting in the end of, uh, or in the middle of 21. And I was just giving voice to what a lot of people were going through and the amount of people that would send me messages. Um, Hey, I couldn't comment on your post because I'm afraid my boss might see it. Um, But, you know, what, please keep talking and please keep sharing these things because we're hurting. That was like, whew, man, there's something here. um, If I've got total strangers telling me that. And then I started asking, um, when I started posting about it, I said, if you have a story you'd like to share, please let me know. And I intended it to be my anecdotes plus this teaching on this process of going through your own rehab. And I suddenly was flooded with executive women reaching out and saying, I've got a story. You should listen to my story. Um, And I wound up interviewing 300 women by accident, actually, (laughs) Um, which was pretty amazing. Um, And, and, you know, some of those stories were uplifting. Some of them were heartbreaking and infuriating, um, but I felt really passionate um, as, as I kept getting into the writing, some of the things that kept me going was giving voice to these women's stories that, that were suffering alone, um, who had never told another soul what they told a total stranger on our interview. Um, and it just tells me that there's a lot of people hurting, um, and, you know, in, in big and small ways. And I think that we can lead better both ourselves, um, our teams around us, and then, the infrastructures and systems that govern most of what we do, a lot of that being in corporate America, um, for a better way. I don't think it has to be the way um, it's always been. And um, I think suffering in that respect of doing it the same way over and over again is is optional. It's like that, that's something I'm learning, relearning every day. Um, but I think that's really what gave the, the impetus for the book and what helped me see it through is that these women deserve to have their stories told. Mm. And I know it just came out October 1st, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Have there been any surprises of, of how people are putting it into practice? No, I think the thing that I'm, I was prepared for, but what's been interesting is you know, the, the title kind of smacks you across the face a little bit that it's corporate rehab. And I had so many people that would reach out and say, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree with everything with with what you're saying, but you don't understand. I've got this boss or yeah, yeah, yeah. I I get what you're saying, but you know, that's because, and give some other reason that they had to distance themselves from, you know, the title. And once I explained a little bit more about what's included and um, and we've had more talks, I've been pleasantly surprised um, how many corporations have reached out and private equity companies and saying, you know, really what this is about is leading at a higher level without losing yourself in the process. And so many of their teams 
are burning out and they can't do things the same way. And so some of this has been interesting to see the reaction from corporate America, which is to say, yes, wellness is important. And there's ways that we could, you know, consider doing this differently. And let's start with our female executives and see, you know, their what they have to um, to bring to the table. I think one of the things I cover in the book is the concept of masculine and feminine energy, and how that's in every one of us, regardless of gender or sexual orientation. But so much of our society and corporate America is driven by masculine energy, which is drive, do, conquer um you know take and the feminine energy that balances that out is nurture and collaborate and you know you really need to see need to look no further than to some of the the prime ministers in some of the other countries as to what that different type of leadership could look like um and again it's not necessarily because you're a man or a woman it's which of those energies are you allowing to dominate your leadership style and so i think there's a huge opportunity to better knit those two together and give room for both as opposed to things having to be um, the same way they've always been. So I think the surprise is that um, that the people that I expected to push back a little bit are, are actually saying, yeah, we agree that there is something different. Maybe how you execute that in each company is gonna be a little bit different, um, but I think there's a huge opportunity there. Yeah. How exciting. I mean, talk about doing something where you are, you think the outcome will be one thing and it starts being something else. That's yes. exciting. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. It's a good, uh, a good lesson, I think, for all of us, especially for someone who's, you know, spent a lot of her career climbing a ladder that she then has to realize, okay, which, <laughs> which direction am I going in? And right. as I pivot into this, there might not be this this you know set outcome on a three-year plan that I'm going for. It might be part of this is seeing what um, what evolves. There's so many great thought leaders out there right now saying similar messages from different angles um, about wholeness, about healing, about you know leading differently. And I'm just so excited to see what we're able to make of things um, moving forward, regardless of which economic cycle we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's a, a recession or a boom, I think there's huge opportunities. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, Jenny, as we wrap up our time together, what's one thing you want listeners to take away from our conversation? I think the one thing I would say is you have a lot of these answers within you. Um, and I would encourage you to read my book, listen to Chris's <laughs> podcast. You know, we have wonderful things to say. Um, and on top of that, so much of it, you already know. Um, there's probably a small voice that you've shoved to the side, or there's maybe a way that your body responds when you're in a really, um, you know, detrimental toxic situation versus when you're really getting a ton of energy and joy. Um, and just listen to yourself because you have a lot of these answers within you and I'll be cheering you on as you discover them. Amazing. Well, final question for you, apart from your book, what book podcast or resource is currently blowing your mind? Oh, that would have to be um, We Can Do Hard Things by Glennon, who I, Doyle, who I already mentioned. Um, Really, uh, because of the diversity of the types of topics that they cover, and so much of theirs are um, how much work and life is interwoven or how life, these mindsets, um, you know, take over whatever scenario we're in. And so I'm really enjoying a lot of the things that they have to say right now, um, particularly where we are in this whole reimagining of work. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jenny and you'll consider what corporate rehab means for you. 
And I hope that you'll take some time to really listen to what's going on in your mind, not only to understand, but to make changes toward your future. What does the future of your work look like? And you'll only know when you take the time to listen. Until next time, may creativity and curiosity fuel your life.